Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to In the Huddle, the exclusive weekly talk show dedicated to NCAA Division III football's Liberty League Conference. Tonight, your hosts, Eric Wren and Frank Rossi, will recap last week's Liberty League action and interview the newsmakers around the league. We'll also preview next week's action and take your calls and online questions. So sit back and put your game face on because you're In the Huddle. Now, live from Studio One in Saratoga Springs, New York, your hosts, Eric Wren and Frank Rossi. All right, it's postseason time. Or about to enter into postseason time, I should say. This is Eric Wren, and I'm joined by my co-host Frank Rossi for yet another edition of Blog Talks Radio in the Huddle. Frank, how you doing tonight? A little cold down here in Coral Gables. It's like 60 degrees, Eric. What'd you guys do? Send your uh, weather from upstate New York down to here? Boy, I tell you, I don't know. I I I, I saw a forecast today. I saw they mentioned Miami and the NFL forecast, and they said 65. I was a little surprised to see that. But uh, you know, weather weather isn't the only place, or I should say, Miami's not the only place where weather played a factor this weekend, Frank. What well, about that? I you know, I'm at a loss for words here. I'm not quite sure exactly how how to, how to lead in. So you know. In a wild and woolly week in Division Three college football, where you know we head into the last regular season game game of the year, and lots are lots of things are on the line for lots of different teams, and 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 some folks you know wildest expectations were met, and others were crushed, and boy, what a week of action, Frank. Yeah, no doubt about it. All four games within six points, uh, the teams finished. Uh, it's just amazing how close the last four games were, even for teams that were well out of the hunt and for those teams that were well in the hunt as well, as you'll see when we get to around the league in a little while. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is uh, you know, the, the, the Liberty League Conference certainly, certainly provided us with lots of ups and downs this year as far as, you know, emotional highs, emotional lows, and everything in between. And, you know, all the way into the last week of the season, you know, you you, you had a potential uh, opportunity for for the, the title to change hands one more time, or also to send different teams on their way to postseason or not go at all. And you know, Frank, uh, have you ever seen? I guess in one day, at least on a regional and kind of national landscape, you know, you've been around Division Three football and in these teams for a long time. Have you ever seen a day like like yesterday? Once in 1996, uh, which was my first full year of calling a union's uh, schedule, uh, I think I saw a pretty good uh, day, maybe about six or seven games uh, changed hands like that. But yesterday was pretty wicked because it was one hour, basically, where I'm doing a union football game and I'm nonstop announcing other team scores, like I'm some kind of uh, news reporter, uh, you know, and by the way, here's a union play for you. It's tough to handle it, but at the same time, people want to know what's going on, and you're getting all these score updates. It was amazing how that all happened. Well, if nothing else, there was certainly an emotional edge to yesterday in a lot of cities and campuses across the Northeast. As, as most of our listeners know, you know, this is also the last regular season game, and postseason starts the next week. 
and we're going to talk a little bit about that. But just to remind everyone here in the huddle tonight, we do have a good good slate of guests. We've got Dick Kaiser, the NCAA Division Three chairman for this football selection committee, which will be a, a great topic of conversation, I'm sure, as you know the, the field has been announced, the brackets have been announced, and you can go to d3football.com to print and download your bracket to see and you know who's in if your team made it and, and who's playing who. We also have uh, Tim Danahy, the Liberty League commissioner, to talk about this season and get, get his perspective. And, and you know it was a wild season in the Liberty League, and like we said, you know lots of lots of ups and downs and, and surprises and some not so surprises. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, we have a guest, a couple guests that we were supposed to have last week that uh, we had some technical difficulties who are going to join us tonight. Jeff Sanders, the uh, senior linebacker from Hobart, as well as Coach Mike Craig, who, uh, you know, they hung on for a very close one yesterday against their rival, University of Rochester, and what can best be described as a uh, quagmire up there in Geneva, Frank, which it'll be interesting to see how that pans out as far as hosting NCAA games go. But, you know, again, unbelievable, unbelievable weekend of activities. You know, there's some there's some folks that, you know, I'm sure are thrilled in Geneva that Hobart is moving on to the NCAs for what is it now the fifth year in a row, Frank? Um, five years in a row since 2004. You know, that's that's a heck of an achievement. Folks should be proud there. And there's some you know some disappointments in other places, um, you know, because and we're going to talk about this some more. But real real wild field this year in the NCAs. Not a lot of one loss teams. You know, RPI had a chance to to go down to Kings Point and win a game and probably get into a, a, a East region seed, and that didn't happen. Some surprises happened. Um, Frank, I'm at, I'm at a loss for words right now. When that happens, you know what we should do? We should just go around the league. Not a bad idea. The RPI engineers visited the St. Lawrence Saints to try to end their season on a winning note after a two-game losing streak. The team started slow with both failing to score in the first quarter. WPI quarterback Justin Wells drove his team 78 yards over nine plays with the drive ending with an 11-yard touchdown pass from Wells to Cody McGregor. St. Lawrence would not respond until after halftime when tailback Eric Jones capped a six-play, 84-yard drive with a five-yard touchdown run that tied the game at 7-7. In the next drive, Wells used his feet to power his team down the field. On the 11th play of the drive, Wells scampered 22 yards to regain the lead with five minutes left in the third quarter. Saints quarterback J.P. Tierney helped his team respond yet again in the very next drive as he engineered a 10-play drive of his own, resulting in an eventual 29-yard pass to Rick Stepien for another tying touchdown with one minute left in the third quarter. WPI would make it four consecutive possessions with the team scoring a touchdown as running back Aaron Champagne found the end zone from one yard out, giving WPI a 21-14 lead with 12 minutes left in regulation. Once again, the Saints would respond with another 9-play 81-yard drive. With 7.43 left, Ramon McNaught ran in the Saints' third touchdown. However, in what is a microcosm of the Saints' season, Matt Popov's kick was no good, leaving the score at 21-20 WPI. St. Lawrence would fail to get within field goal range during its two remaining drives, making that the final score. Wells finished the day with 229 yards passing and 65 yards rushing to help his team finish their season at 7-3 overall and 4-3 in the Liberty League. Despite Eric Jones' 145 yards rushing, the Saints finish at 1-9 and 1-6 respectively. In Zealandsville, Pennsylvania, the Union College Fighting Dutchman made the trip to visit the Susquehanna Crusaders in what was considered the battle of the league's two top tailbacks, Susquehanna's Dave Pavlitz and Union's Chris Coney. Neither player would disappoint. 
After the Union defense stopped WPI in downs, Coney put Union on the scoreboard with a four-yard touchdown run midway through the quarter. In the next drive, the Crusaders used an uncharacteristic 18 plays to move the ball 79 yards over nearly nine minutes before sending Tablets into the end zone from one yard out. In the next drive, Susquehanna began to seize momentum as Blaze Ancona's punt from near midfield was blocked, sending the ball wildly into the Union end zone where the Crusaders knocked the ball out of bounds for a safety. Two plays after the ensuing free kick, quarterback Derek Pope found Keith Howell for a 15-yard touchdown and a 16-7 lead. The second quarter was far from over, though, for Union. Freshman quarterback Andrew Connolly first found Jared Gorier for a 24-yard touchdown pass just two minutes later. After Union's Eric Baxter forced a fumble by Pope that was recovered by Tim Romano, Connolly struck again with a 72-yard pass played to Justin Gallo. The 21-16 lead wasn't enough for Connolly as Union took the ball at the Crusaders' 35 after a 35-yard punt returned by Kevin Rottenstrock. Connolly found fullback Dave Carson for a four-yard touchdown and a 29-16 lead after Union converted a two-point conversion. Susquehanna would close the half, though, with a nine-play drive that featured Pope in the air and on the ground as he was scoring a one-yard touchdown to close the half at 29-23 Union. Union's second half started with a crash, though, as Connolly was intercepted two plays into the half by Susquehanna's Josh Simpson, who returned the ball to Union 17 before Union was assessed two unsportsmanlike conduct penalties after Coney and some of the Crusaders tangled after the play. The turn of events inspired the Dutchman, leading to a fourth and goal from the five that was stopped by the Dutchman. Coney took control with 55 yards rushing in the next drive that was capped with this play from the Crusaders' 25. I guess Coney's okay. He's the lone setback, but he's going to be protecting this time. And a throw to Gallo. Caught. What a touchdown. Union College. Touchdown, Union College. Passing touchdown number four for Drew Connolly. The Crusaders would resort to another long drive to respond, eventually leading to a third goal from the seven, in which Pope found Owen for the touchdown. John DeLuca, though, would give Union another opportunity to score after intercepting a pass intended for J.J. Moran and bringing the ball to the Crusaders' 18. Chris Coney would score his second touchdown two plays later, giving Union a 42-30 lead following a missed two-point conversion. In the final quarter, Coney ran for his third touchdown for five yards out and a 48-30 Union lead. Tablets and Pope have been in this situation before and were not daunted. Tablets began Susquehanna's comeback bid with an 11-yard touchdown run with 11 minutes left to cut the lead to 11. Then one play after a Mitch Phillips interception of a Connolly pass, Pope found Jim Owen for a 23-yard touchdown. The successful two-point conversion made the score 48-45. Union would respond with a decent drive, but the Dutchman had to settle for a field goal from the Crusaders' seven to keep the game at a one-possession lead with 6.22 left. Tablets and Pope were able to work the ball into a first-and-goal situation from the Union 10, but Union stood strong for the first three plays. Susquehanna would have one final chance from the two-yard line. Split backfield. Unusual, but it's going to be a pass play. Pope is tackled. Incomplete. He threw it. It's incomplete. Union regains the ball. Oh my what God. a great play. Great dial-up by Coach Peter Brown. Coney was able to break a 50-yard run for a first down to secure the 51-45 Union victory. The teams combined for 1,052 yards and 96 points, including Coney's 244 yards and three touchdowns and Connolly's 247 yards passing. The Dutchman finished the regular season at 5-4 overall and 4-3 in the league, making this the 29th straight Dutchman football season without a losing record. Susquehanna's Pavlitz gained 147 yards on the ground and 55 yards in the air as Pope passed for 372 yards in the Crusaders' loss. They finished their season at 4-6 and 3-4 and respectively.
With a win on Long Island, the RPI engineers could have still made their dream of earning an NCAA playoff slot possible, but the Merchant Marine Academy Mariners wanted to badly snap their five-game losing streak. The game started as expected for the engineers, with Nick Costa rushing for a four-yard touchdown after the Mariners failed to convert on their first drive. The setback did not seem to phase the Mariners, though, who were led by backup quarterback Carlton Hopkirk in a 13-play, 74-yard drive over the next seven minutes. J.J. Watson, whose play has been muted of late, found his steam again, capping the drive off with a one-yard touchdown run to tie the game at seven apiece. RPI, plagued all day by the windy and rainy weather on Long Island, lost its first of three fumbles in the next drive deep in Mariners territory, making the rest of the first quarter a battle of field position. Eventually, Merchant Marine won that battle, making their way to the RPI 4 before being forced to kick a 21-yard field goal, but Jeff Troy's boot gave the Mariners the 10-7 lead. Through the next 10 minutes, RPI's offense sputtered, but the Mariners had trouble getting chunks of yards for first downs themselves. Finally, the Mariners caught a big break following a 12-yard punt by Nick Lumia, giving them the ball at the RPI 26. The Mariners could only move the ball two yards, but Troy was good again from 41 yards to make the halftime score 13-7 Mariners. The Mariners worked hard to eat up as much clock as they could in the second half, taking the third quarter kickoff and running 10 plays over five and a half minutes. However, they would receive no points on the drive. Both teams traded punts before Mike Gallucci recovered an RPI fumble that rolled back to the RPI 3. Two plays later, the Mariners began making believers out of the Liberty League. Here's Ray Martell from the Mariners Radio Network with a call courtesy of Seth Canner. I formation, May and Watson. Hand off Watson. Up the middle, through! Touchdown! Mariners take the lead again and extend it 19-7. The 20-7 lead was short-lived as RPI seemed to wake up following Patrick McCarthy's kickoff return that went 61 yards to the Mariners' 28. On fourth and goal from the three, Robertson found Nick Casal playing on offense for the play for a three-yard touchdown reception and a 20-14 deficit. At the start of the fourth quarter, RPI drove to the Mariners' 25, but a sack by Merchant Marines Nick Thompson ended the drive. This allowed Troy to punt the ball 63 yards after the ensuing Mariners' drive failed to move the ball. This forced RPI to begin again very deep. After eight plays, RPI had to punt again, but this time the Mariners made things interesting. And the punt is blocked! Picked up by the Mariners! 25, Gosselin 20, 15, and pushed out of bounds at the 7-yard line! Make it the 12, and Gosselin comes through with a big play after the block! This led to a major chance for a two-possession lead for the Mariners once again with 6.34 left in regulation. It's a 22-yard field goal almost in the middle of the field. Good snap, down, kick, on his way, it is up, and it is good! 6.34 to play in the fourth, the Mariners extend their lead to nine, 23-14. RPI's Jimmy Robertson was picked off in the next drive, forcing RPI to use its timeouts. Eventually the engineers would get the ball back with 4.12 remaining, and move down the field in 76 seconds when Robertson rushed for his own 14-yard touchdown. This cut the lead to 23-21. However, RPI could not stop Watson and Davey May, who each earned first downs. Hobkirk, with 31 seconds, takes the snap and goes to a knee with 21 seconds, and this one is over, and a celebration begins. They storm the field. The Mariners have knocked off RPI. Merchant Marine was outgained 293 to 262 yards, and they were led by Watson's 146 yards and two touchdowns on the ground. The Mariners finished at 3-7 overall and 2-5 and in the league. RPI, who was led by Ray Davis's 164 receiving yards and nine receptions, finishes the regular season at 7-2 and 5-2 and respectively.
The Hobart Statesmen knew that they controlled their own playoff destiny coming into Saturday as they had a chance to not only win the league outright, but to also earn a home playoff game with a win. The Rochester Yellow Jackets decided to play party poopers, though, on a muddy and cold Boswell Field. After the teams exchanged punts, Rochester struck first in the battle for the Centennial Cup as the Yellow Jackets scored on the 13th play of the drive on a Patrick Keegan four-yard pass to Zach Inglesby for a 7-0 lead. Both teams had a great deal of trouble offensively in the first half, with Hobart mounting just 20 yards in the first two quarters. While a Hobart fumble loss by quarterback Doug Vela at the end of the first quarter did not lead to points, a later interception thrown by Vela in the second quarter eventually made coach Mike Craig decide to switch back to quarterback Rich Doyle, who injured his throwing hand last week against RPI. The half ended after a series of punts and fumbles, meaning that Rochester would hold on to its 7-0 lead at halftime. Third quarter started poorly for Doyle, who tossed his own interception to Trenton Tully deep in Rochester territory. After a good lance point to return of Rochester's ensuing punt, Doyle and tailback Andrew Marlier got down to business. On fourth and goal from the two, the Statesman went for it. Here's Ted Baker of the Statesman Radio Network with the call. Double tight ends. Deegan sets up now tight end left. And Doyle's going to take off on the option, dives himself, and in for the touchdown! Rich Doyle took off to the right side himself, dives in, touchdown Hobart, and a chance to tie. The extra point made it a 7-7 tie. Rochester tried to move the ball, but Keegan fumbled the ball to Hobart's Jeff Sanders at midfield. Yet Hobart again couldn't hold on to the ball, fumbling it back to Chris Bickford at Rochester's 35-yard line to end the third quarter. Andrew Carr Harris took the ball across midfield for Rochester with a 29-yard rush to the Hobart 40, but the Yellow Jackets could not get into the field goal range they needed and instead punted the ball back to Hobart. Winning the game of field position, Rochester eventually made a huge mistake midway through the fourth quarter with the ball at midfield. Keegan under center, play fake, toss to Sosa, trick play, wants to throw, gets it off, downfield, jump ball, it's intercepted! Picked off by Woodard, up the middle at the 30-yard line, Woodard to the 35, still going to the 40, hangs on to the ball, and he's cut down just short of the 40. Hobart was able to hold on to the ball this time for a 14-play, 60-yard drive that lasted six minutes and moved the ball to the Rochester 2. On fourth and goal, the Statesman looked for a second straight game-winning field goal by Connor Callahan. On a muddy Boswell field, snap is good, kick is on the way, and the kick is good! Callahan puts Hobart in front with 1-0-1 left to play. Rochester had one last chance with 56 seconds left driving to the Hobart 33, but on fourth and one, the Statesman defense stood tall. Fourth and five, and back to throw is Keegan. He gets chased, he's going to be sacked, and Hobart's going to win the game. Anthony Shaw with the sack. The Statesman win the Liberty League outright as Sanders led his team with two fumble recoveries, five solo tackles, and ten assisted tackles. Hobart finished the regular season at 8-1 overall and 7-1 in the league. Rochester finishes at 3-7 and and 3-4 respectively. And as always, my companion Frank Rossi, nice work there on Around the League, week ending November 14th. Boy, Frank Hobart, two, two weeks in a row, last second uh, field goal dramatics. They, uh, I, guess it's, I guess being a kicker at Hobart these days, it, there's uh, some job security in that, huh? <laughs> uh, you must be on mute again, Frank, just like last week. Come on, bud. Yeah, well, I don't want people to hear me getting all excited and dancing around during around the league. It would be kind of embarrassing for me. Well, I guess I just blew that. Uh, anyways, uh, you know, Hobart had to kick in a muddy uh, quagmire of a field, as you called it, uh, both an extra point and a field goal, and it was incredible they were able to do so. And in doing so, we might as well start revealing uh, the uh, East bracket. They become the number four seed and will host Lycoming next week in the NCAA playoffs in Geneva. 
Yeah, and I tell you, Frank, you know, I know it's inevitable that we're not going to spend much time. We're going to we're going to look forward to uh, our guests in postseason. But you know, h- how big of a shock? I was going to create a new word here. I was going to use the word shock and surprise in the same word. How how big of a shock is it? I mean, to anyone following the Liberty League, you know, the the Merchant Marine upset of RPI. I mean, you know, you got you got give your you know you got to give credit where credit's due. Coach Tupa. Uh, did a phenomenal job getting those guys ready, and and you know I talked to Seth Cantor, one of the Merchant Marine broadcasters after the game, and he said his ten years of broadcasting that's the biggest biggest win they've ever had. Um, yeah, in fact, I think we have a clip. We have a clip, I think, there of uh, Coach Toop after the game, who has had just an up and down season. Period. It started off well, and then they lost those five uh, straight games, and we interviewed him on in the huddle, and uh, finally the jinx uh, in the huddle uh, wore off. So you know. Well, you know what? It's uh, it's all about the kids because they hung in there, and uh, nobody nobody gave us a chance in hell to win except the coaches and these kids. And this is what happens when you believe. Yeah, and certainly there was a lot of believers in Merchant Marine. There was a lot of disbelievers in, in other parts of the country too, Frank. Because you know, surely I think the the mood was. Coming out of that big loss against Hobart at home, the last regular season game at 86 Field, RPI was going to find a way to regroup, you know, with some heavy hearts, of course, but go down there to Kings Point with a with a Pool C postseason NCAA berth still on the line, and especially the way things shook out. I tell you, you know, I want to congratulate RPI players on a you know putting together a good season, not the way they wanted it to end, but still, you know, they finished seven and two in the regular season. It wasn't so long ago when when that kind of season was something, you know, that caused a lot of excitement in Troy. And so it's the mark of a good program when you're finishing 7-2, and two, just missing the NCAAs, and there's profound disappointment. So, you know, the seniors who played a tough regular season game at our you know, tough regular season schedule, you know, battled every week, you know, nothing to hang their heads about, just like any of the other seniors at all the other programs. You know, all of our member teams in the Liberty League Conference, congratulations on a great regular season of, of practices, of, of sticking with it. Of playing your you know your butts off, everyone's got you know a lot to be proud of, and I know these guys you know the younger guys are gonna come back next year and, and put it together. So nice working around the league this year, Frank. I just wanted to you know end end us on that note in that message. Well, I appreciate that, and uh, you know we got to start looking forward a little bit. As we said, uh, this is kind of the you know we're going to the playoffs with only one team, and we got some ECAC bowl games to talk about. So, uh, you know, it's uh, it's one of those things, Eric, uh, a bittersweet time in the season where we're going to lose a few teams, obviously. But they all played hard this weekend. Uh, again, six points was the biggest margin of victory, and that was by Union in a 51-45 game against Susquehanna. You had a one-point game in the St. Lawrence WPI game. You had a three-point game in the Hobart uh, game. You had, what, a two-point game in the RPI game. That's unbelievable that all these teams yeah, were able I mean- to show up to that degree. Most of these were defensive struggles, but except the one the one you saw, I mean, Frank, who's, who's calling the plays down in Southern's Grove now? Mike Marks? I mean, these guys have put up uh, what, how many points in the last three games? I think you told me that's about, that. About 140 points, uh, I think it is now, uh, in the last three games. I mean, that's, that's just tremendous at any level, whether it's D3, D1, D2, pros. I mean, that's, you know, they've certainly got some momentum down there, um, I, I think, they they found a way to put points on the board, and clearly in this league, you got to put points on the board to win. So they've got a lot to look forward to down there, and some weapons in Susquehanna for for the next season. 
Well, as Sean Connerly said, though, in that uh, union game, a uh, great job by defensive coordinator Pete Brown uh, on that fourth and goal from the two. A game that's 51-45 to 45, that ends up coming down to a two-yards-to-go uh, scenario like that, and union's uh, defense able to stop Susquehanna from taking a 52-51 lead most likely. So, uh, you, you know, know you're in a shootout when, when the defensive coordinator is getting congratulated for one specific play. <laughs> not, not the whole game, right? I mean, you know. I guess when you make that one big call in a shootout and it stops their team, that's when it counts the most. So, you know, they found a way, Union found a way to stop them when it mattered. So, big big win down there for you guys and, and you know, the people in, in Schenectady. Big win in, in Birchard Marine Academy. Probably the large, I, I would have to designate that one of the biggest wins in, in King Point history against RPI as far as since they've joined the Liberty League for sure. Hobart found a way to take care of business. You know, it's, it's all in all, Frank. Yeah, I'd have to say, did the did the Liberty League perform the way we thought it would this year? You know, all in all, I would say it did. You know, lots of lots of emotional ups and downs, lots of surprises, lots of good things, lots of things we didn't think we'd see. All in all, I, I'd rate this a successful endeavor, Frank. I definitely a successful endeavor and a very successful league. We're going to talk to Tim Danahy later on in the show to discuss it. Uh, you know, when we talked to him at, what, the third week of the uh, show, I think we uh, did it, our discussion with him, you know, we didn't know what this league was going to look like. And, boy, it was actually a surprise uh, a week, basically. You had WPI fighting all the way, it seemed like, until the Hobart game. You had the Susquehanna offensive explosion suddenly. You had that big comeback by Susquehanna at one point. You had RPI losing last week and the way it did, and then this week the way it did, which is heartbreaking surprise. Unfortunately, that's the way it goes. You know, it's been just ups and downs that we didn't necessarily foresee one bit. Yeah, and I think to that point, Frank, you know, I think a lot of people coming into this season, everyone knew, you know, Hobart's been competing for the title each of the last, you know, four or five years, so everyone knew Hobart's going to be a factor. You know, we knew Union was going to be a young team. Jury was still out a little bit. I think most of the way through the season, or at least three-quarters of the way through the season, WPI was quite a pleasant surprise, and there was some talk about them. Hey, if the ball bounced a certain way, they might be able to sneak up on the postseason. You know, <clears throat> in fact, Frank, you look at this You look at this postseason, the way it's shaping up now in the East region, you know, a, a clear lack of one-loss teams. You know, you can go almost go back and make the argument, hey, WPI at one point, they only lost to RPI. Had they won out, they could have been looking at an NCAA bid. You know, bid. It was a really crazy season in terms of, of, of who's in, who's out. But, you know, they, they, they were running tough for a while. There were some great moments earlier in the season with, with Kings Point and Susquehanna. Susquehanna came back the last part of the season and won a few big games in a row. So, I mean, hey, <laughs> got your money's worth this year if you're a Liberty League fan. I don't think it's any surprise to see a Hobart at the top. But I think, you know, the reality of it is, Frank, I think a lot of people coming into the season – had RPI as the favorite candidate to win the league. Jimmy Robertson, quarterback, Savasi back, some great players on defense. So, you know, in that regard, it didn't pan out if you're a fan of RPI. They made a run at it. But once again, Hobart's on top. That's uh, true, definitely. And uh, you know what? Let's actually, uh, if we can, take a break. We're going to try to round up uh, Dick Kaiser, who is the uh, NCAA Division Three Football Championships uh, Committee Chair, and uh, see if we can get him on as uh, advertised. And then uh, Tim Danahy is going to be on after him, as you said, Jeff Sanders from Hobart, and Coach Mike Craig from Hobart as well uh, to round out the show tonight. So, uh, Eric, if we can take a commercial, you are in the huddle. 
You gotta be a bit crazy, a little bit out your mind If you've been drinking, then you go out and drive You're risking countless lives, and your own too Plus you risk hurting everyone that knows you Yeah, they'll be so blue, standing at your burial Thinking that you were a fool while at your memorial The point is, you shouldn't risk those lives If you drink, don't drive, if you drink, don't drive Spend yeah. a few bucks on a cab, or sleep while you've been drinking If you drink, don't drive, stay alive, start thinking Stay sober, arrive alive If you drink, don't drive, if you drink, don't drive Mad dog I'm a good driver. I look for cars. I pay attention. I I should have seen the little girl in the crosswalk. Please, look for pedestrians. Stop for them. Think of the impact you could make. A message from the Federal Highway Administration. All season long, let D3Football.com be your home for all the Division Three football action on the road to the Stag Bowl. From interactive blogs and message boards to columns from around the region and around the nation on your favorite teams, nobody covers NCAA Division Three better than D3Football.com. As the playoffs approach, get the scoop on who's in and who's out from the experts who picked all 32 teams last year. Don't go anywhere else. Get the info from the source for Division Three football at www.D3Football.com. You are listening to In the Huddle on blogtalkradio.com, the only source for weekly Liberty League action in NCAA Division III football's Liberty League Conference. So once again, back to Studio One in Saratoga Springs, New York, your hosts, Eric Wren and Frank Rossi. And once again, you're back in the huddle. This is Eric Rent, joined here by my colleague Frank Rossi out of Miami. I'm in Studio One, Saratoga Springs. You are in the huddle on blogtalkradio.com. You heard from a few of our, our supporters, including all the folks at d3football.com. Mr. Pat Coleman, the publisher, he's been an occasional guest of ours. Hopefully we might get him one more time this season. While we're waiting to try and line up and get our next guest on the phone, Dick Kaiser, he's the chair of the NCAA Division Three Football Selection Committee. He's from... Uh, uh, Defiance College. Um, I might as well just read through real quick so you folks have it. Um, the East Region, I should say the East Bracket, the 18 Bracket, first round, just so you have it, you can go to d3football.com yourself and pick it up. But if you're not in front of your uh, your uh, web browser right now to do that, you just want me to read it to you, I'm going to do that. And when we get Dick Kaiser on the phone, we'll talk a little bit about how this was made because there are some, I, w- I would call, Intriguing selections here, intriguing pairings. Um, so why don't we read through this right now. First round, November 22nd. These all are Eastern times. Number one, Mount Union, shipped off again to the East region for the second time in as many years. Takes on an interesting team that came and was brought into the East region this year, Randolph-Macon, the uh, alma mater of D3 football's own Keith McMillan. Mount Union facing Randolph-Macon in a first-round matchup, 12 noon next Saturday. Mount Union hosting. Boy, that's interesting. You know, the East Bracket, Mount Union against Randolph-Macon round one. It's kind of interesting. Second game, number five seed, Lycoming, is hosting Hobart, five versus four, 12 noon. That's out at Lycoming. Should be you know close matchup there, four and five seeds. Plymouth State from the New England Football Conference is number six seed at 10-1. They get the automatic qualifier as the conference champion. They're taking on number three, Cortland State, at 12 noon. Cortland is hosting that game down in upstate New York. 
number seven, here's the biggest surprise. We're going to talk a little bit about this with Dick Kaiser. Curry at 9-1 and one, sneaks into the NCAAs against number two seed Ithaca. Folks, you heard me right. A second New England football conference team picking up a Pool C at-large bid, rewarded by <laughs> a uh, trip out to Ithaca College. So all those folks out there in the chat rooms and in the, in the football community who like to question the viability of, of those, those teams in that conference, the quality of football, you have your chance this year. Two teams in the East bracket. Not only you get the conference champion Plymouth State, but Curry makes it as well. And that is the East region bracket. Mount Union, Randolph-Macon, Lycoming, Hobart, Plymouth State, Cortland State, Curry, and Ithaca. I know that there's going to be a lot of talk, folks, in the uh, Liberty League chat room or the East region chat room on d3football.com about that. You know, it's always a fun topic. I know we've got some folks here tonight in our chat room that want to ask uh, Dick Kaiser a question about, about uh, this Curry selection. So, you know, I got, I got folks pointing to me uh, here in the chat room saying, you know, calling me out saying, how could they not be in front of the web browsers while listening? You know what? I'll tell you what. Sometimes I listen to my laptop when I'm sitting in the other room and just listen to the sound. So there. That's how it can be done. Uh, Frank, how are we doing so far with getting Dick Kaiser on the phone? You know what? Uh, unfortunately, uh, or well, fortunately, I guess, these things happen. This man probably spent hours last night, we'll ask him about it, uh, trying to pick a, uh, with his committee a, a bunch of teams, nine teams in particular, and then see 32 teams. So, you know what? I think we have to forgive him, no doubt about it. Uh, unfortunately, just. Uh, kind of blowing the time on this one. He's this is his free time. It's Sunday night. Let's face it. So we do appreciate any time he can give us right now. He should be calling at any moment now. All right, great. So Frank, we just read through the East Region bracket. You know, I think there's a lot of folks, I, myself included, that have some surprise, some element of surprise to the fact that the England Football Conference placed two teams in the East Region. I mean, what, I know you and I have talked about this. Talk a little bit about your take on the Curry selection, Frank. I'm surprised, uh, no doubt about it. Uh, when I found out today, I laughed for about 60 seconds, I think, uh, was my reaction. I, I don't know if it was a laugh of uh, kind of unhappy surprise or just one of those, hey, anything in the world, I guess, can really happen things. And, you know, I thought Montclair was a shoe in If anybody from the East was going to get in, it would be Montclair. But we're going to have Mr. Kaiser, I'm sure, discuss who was left on the board uh, to see, uh, you know, what team might have been next. We, we can't tell. It would be one of four teams most likely because they set up the bracket. Uh, they, they rank teams in each region and then take the top four from each one for Pool C, pick one out, then roll the second team up to first and keep doing that six times until they have the six teams they want. Well, who better to talk about that process and the thought process behind it than our first guest tonight, Mr. Dick Kaiser, the chairman of the NCAA Division III Selection Committee out of uh, his own school out there. Mr. Kaiser, are you on the phone with us? Yep, I'm on the phone. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. And in the huddle, Eric Ren, Frank Rossi, we know, this, as we can imagine, this could be a uh, very busy time of year or, or day for you, I would assume. <laughs> it started off at uh, yesterday when uh, our own our own team played a big rivalry game down in, in Bluffton, uh, Ohio, and we ended up playing in two and a half inches of snow, so that made it interesting. I drove huh. from there to Indianapolis, 
started getting on the phones and the computer at 7.30 and got done at 4 this morning, got about four hours of sleep, drove back to Defiance, Ohio, which is about three hours, and I've been on the phone ever since. So, yeah, it's it's been a real interesting day. Well, well I tell you, really appreciate of, this then. Yeah, there was a lot of anticipation when, when you were gracious enough to join us and our you know, our little regional project here, just covering the Liberty League to get someone of your position and caliber. That's we we truly appreciate that, and that's an honor to us to have you. So thanks for taking time. Lots of our listeners have, have you know been firing off questions to us. Have been really you know tuned in to the fact that hey, finally someone can come maybe help us see the trees through the forest as far as the process you go through to select teams, especially when you're talking about a crazy day yesterday where. Lots of things that we thought were going to happen didn't happen, creating some problems for you. So uh, take us through, uh, Mr. Kaiser, if you could, you know, on a day like yesterday where some of these teams start dropping off and now there's not this clear-cut one-loss team pool. How, how did this present, you know, what kind of problems did this present to you yesterday? Well, it, it, was, uh, it was particularly interesting in the east where you guys are located because there were some teams that uh, we thought were probably going to get in. You know, everybody prognosticates a little bit, and you kind of draw your own little pool before it all happens, wondering, thinking this is how it's going to go. And, oh, my gosh, teams started losing on the East Coast that we would have never gathered or ever thought that we're going to lose. So it really changed some of the dynamics of the bracket. And then we also had a crazy crazy one down in the ODAC where we didn't even have this team on the radar and all of a sudden Randolph Macon comes screeching in and via the Rose Bowl rule gets in by winning um, you know they won, it's a four way tie and, and they ended up tied with two, uh, another team head to head type thing and they've been the last team to go so that's the Rose Bowl rule. Then you have a one loss team lose out in California you have a one-loss team or a no-loss team um, lose in uh, at the the Wabash DePaul game, and so it really changed the dynamics of the bracket. So the AQs kind of always, as you know, take care of themselves, except for there were two or three huge surprises in the AQs as it boiled down um, with like Tomings coming in, and they were kind of like in third opportunity uh, to get in 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 that league in the MAC and then all of a sudden they're in um, the big obviously one of the big games in your area was Ithaca and Cortland and um, you know Court uh, Ithaca pretty much was in a situation where they almost had to win or, or be a two-loss team Cortland already had the AQ but lo and behold, St. John's Fisher ends up losing in overtime, so that reversed the Empire Eight and the Liberty League and how it all turned out. So once we get in the room and we, we draw up the AQs, then we put down the available pool B teams, and there were seven that we were looking at for the last three weeks. But as it turned out, uh, two of them played head-to-head yesterday, which were LaGrain and Huntington, and they were both one-loss teams. So whoever lost that game was probably going to be out. Case Western Reserve uh, was undefeated, the only undefeated team 
and Pool B, and they ended up winning out yesterday. So that pretty much gave them a lock. Uh, Wesley kind of came through the back door and, and lost early in the season and just started winning and, and, and kept on winning. And then one of the big teams that was looking strong in Pool B uh, up until uh, yesterday was Northwestern out of Minnesota, and then they just got hammered by um, St. Thomas. 44 to nothing, so that kind of blew them out of the water. And then everybody else was the two-loss team. So once we had all the Pool Bs up on the board and looking at the records, we had one undefeated team and two one-loss teams, and so it was a pretty easy choice. Well, I have have one question for you that I would be remiss if I didn't ask. A lot of folks have asked me to ask this to you, and since I'm one of the co-hosts, I'll pull executive privilege here and ask my question first. Um, (laughs) What kind of effect did did the RPI Kings Point loss have yesterday to the East seeding process? And and I ask that in terms of let's assume they win that game. I I would think that that, based on the other activities yesterday, they, they get in. I'm just curious. You know, do you verify? Will you ver- validate that they would have been in, and where do you think they would have been seated? Um, I can't really tell you where they'd be seated because I would have had to seen it. But I, they had a very, very strong opportunity to get in, as did Moravian, or not Moravian, but um, um, as did Montclair State. And both of those teams losing and losing their last game and pushing them down to uh, an eight and two season affected the the rankings in um, particularly on that what we call the Mount Union bracket, for lack of a better way to put it, but it's primarily East teams, probably let in one eight and two team um, because there was only one eight eight and two team that was a pool C that got in and possibly let in one or two nine and one teams because we had at least four uh, one loss teams yesterday got beat that all of a sudden they dropped out of the pool. So so they just drop out? There's no re- recalibration to think about maybe? Oh, no. Re- no, no. Then then what happens is once, once you uh, get down to uh, pool Bs are all taken care of, now you pool, do pool Cs, each of the regional advisory committees are called RACs, which are made up of coaches in the four different regions in the in the country, they go together and they've been doing it all year long. They rank the teams in the various regions of the country. And how that affects pool C's is that where you're ranked in that final ranking for the rack, in other words, where you're ranked in the final ranking of the east or the south, west, north, puts you on the board either above or below somebody. And what happened with RPI, what happened with uh, Montclair State, is they both got dropped in the rankings when and teams got pushed up above them. And so when you start the process of pulling pool Cs, you have four regions on the country. And so you say, well, who's the best pool C that's number one in their region right now, meaning left on the board. And so you go through that process and you do the numbers and you look at schedules and look at all the wins and losses of the teams they've played and how many winning teams they've played and how many losing teams, and you try to make a decision from that. And what happens as you begin to pull teams off, say, for instance, we took a team from the east and they went in, 
then the next team that was ranked in the East would move to the top of the East region. So now they're being considered with the four other regions. Well, with so many 9-1 and one teams still on the board, so many undefeated, we still had eight undefeated teams as of yesterday, um, but whether they had AQs or whatever the point might be, it, it became very, very difficult and very, very tough. If you were an 8-2 and two team and you were not an AQ, your chances of getting in got exceptionally tough. Hey, Dr. Kaiser, uh, Frank Rossi, Eric Wren uh, in the huddle. Uh, for those just joining us, we have uh, Dr. Dick Kaiser, athletic director from uh, Defiance College and the committee chair for the NCAA uh, Division III championships uh, in football. Uh, there's a, few, a lot of questions that we're being asked. We want to try to get through as many of them as we can, and uh, we uh, want to value your time as well. So we're going to try to do a balance here as best we can. Uh, there's yeah, one, been, one good question. Go I've got all the time in the world, so fire away. Oh, really? Hey, don't don't invite that. You never know. <laughs> Are you interested in us becoming a third co-host of In the Huddle every week now? <laughs> <laughs> well, here, here's the first question, the first real question for you. Who's left on the board after you guys were done? There, uh, you just talked about how you roll teams from uh, each region. You pick one, you replace them with who was underneath them, et cetera. What four teams were remaining from the east, north, south, and west once you guys were finished? And who was the 32nd team picked, uh, for that matter? Well, I really, I'm not at, at liberty to say who's 32nd team is, but the four teams that were left on the board were DePaul, Cal Lutheran, uh, Montclair State, and uh, Wooster. Now, a lot of people were wondering also, Hartwick came into the week ranked sixth in East Region uh, rankings. Uh, I think the RACs, as you call them, are from the RACs. Uh, yeah, the Regional Advisor Committee is correct. So, now they came in sixth. A lot of people were surprised they didn't drop after a loss to Springfield the previous week, uh, which is not a good loss for them. And Honestly, you try to reward winning, not losing at the end of the day, but when you look at a loss like that, you scratch your head about Hartwick. What happened to Hartwick when you got your hands around them yesterday, even though they won against Utica yesterday? And where did they exactly fall or sort of fall, I guess, uh, in the whole scheme of things? Okay, so you're going to have to help me a little bit because I don't have all the papers in front of me. Uh, did no problem. Did Hartwick win or lose against Utica yesterday? They beat Utica uh, by 10 points. I think it was 34-24 thereabouts, maybe 31-21. Uh, but okay. they beat Utica, but the previous week lost to Springfield, but didn't move in, uh, in the rankings after that loss to Springfield. They were one spot behind RPI, actually, in the East Region rankings last week. The big, the big problem we had in the East, uh, to be real frank with you, and I caught a little bit of the conversation as I got on the phone tonight with you guys, is what do we do with uh, Curry? Curry is a 9-1 team. And uh, the committee had had made a decision early in the year before all of it came to fruition that if a team ended up 10 and 0 or even came in 9 and 1, we needed to take a considerably hard look at them because to finish 9 and 1, I don't care who you're playing, it's still very difficult. And the problem that you have with the New England Football League is they pretty much interplay all all season long. They don't play anybody outside, so they play their, their side of the bracket, and then they cross over and play a few. So their numbers are never, ever going to be 
significantly high or significantly low because within the NCA and the OWP and the OWP that was developed that we now have to use, it's pretty much standard that if you play in a conference that has eight, nine, or ten league games, your numbers will always be not very far above 500 or not very far below 500 because you're playing so many league games, somebody has to win and somebody has to lose. So, well, now, you and I were talking on Monday uh, when uh, we arranged for the interview, and I brought up the team Hassan to you, and you had a kind of frank reaction, no uh, pun intended, but uh, let's say a pretty quick reaction at least, as to 7-0 and in in region play, but 7-2 and when you throw in two Division two losses that they had. Where did they fit in when you guys were looking at Pool B and Pool C uh, yesterday? Well, we looked at them. Uh, obviously, as you said, they're 7-0 and in division, but they were 7-2 and overall. But you still have to look at their overall uh, record because in NCAA statistics in, the, in football, there's not enough games played, so it fluctuates the numbers. You have to play almost 16 or 17 games before the, the numbers take on a real strong can-count-on-them type uh, scenario. So with Husson, we did look at, as we do with every school, we did look at the number. And the problem with Husson is they had the weakest schedule of every of all the 60 teams that were sometimes in the mix during the last two or three weeks. They had the weakest schedule of everybody. So when they came up and it wasn't – Nine and all, it was seven and two. It was fairly easy for the committee to make a decision, and that was the weakest numbers in what's called in division with uh, OWP, which means it's their schedule, the one they made. So therefore, they were playing teams they choose to play, and it was an exceptionally poor, poor schedule. One other question, halfway, real quick. Um, this one uh, was brought up earlier during Pat Coleman's uh, D3Football.com show. When you originally released the bracket, from what I understand, out west uh, we see an anomaly currently uh, where uh, I believe it's Oxy and Willamette, the number one and two seeds, are going to face each other out west. Originally, that wasn't represented in the brackets that were first seen, uh, I guess, today. What happened in the meantime, and why were the brackets re-released with a one versus two setup in that situation? Well, the bottom line is the NCA uh, is very conscious about travel and trying to do bus trips and not flights. And the original schedule was set, so there was going to be two flights, and both of those flights were going to go to the number one seed in, in Oregon, which was Willamette, and the number two seed in Occidental. And the M- NCA uh, made a decision that they would not allow Division Three to do two flights, we had to reduce it to one, and therefore uh, we had to make it a, a change, and the one flight was going to be between Occidental and, and Willamette because Occidental's two, they had to fly up, so we had to re-bracket that, and it pretty much shuffled uh, all of what we call pool, what we called pool three, which was the bracket with Willamette, down through uh, Stevens Point, Whitewater, Monmouth, Aurora, those schools. We had to do some reshuffling. So there were some games that were originally designed to be different games. Uh, when we left the boardroom last night, that changed at 11 o'clock this morning. Oh, boy. So you've had a long day and then some. Dr. Kaiser, you just mentioned you know, the NCA being sensitive to travel you know, schedules, things like that. 
What about the other side of the equation? How much does the NCAA care about potential regional rematches? You know, and in this case in point, obviously Ithaca and Cortland are, are in the same bracket. Is there any consideration to that rematch, to that game, to the regional kind of implication that it has when you when you set up these brackets? Do um, you know? Do you take anything like that into account? Absolutely, but uh, the way it turned out, uh, Cortland was uh, ended up as a higher seed, and and we talked about it. You know, and I can be, uh, you know, this is, I don't think, divulging. We talked about it considerably last night about the potential of that rematch, and also you have a rematch in Texas where Harden-Simmons and Mary Harden-Baylor are playing, and they played earlier in the year. Um, And we just felt like um, those two teams, Ithaca and Cortland, granted they're going to end up potentially playing in the second round, but one of those two teams deserves to try to get um, to the uh, eventual final because they're good enough teams, and we basically kept them out of the Mount Union bracket, for lack of a better way to say it. Well, now, talking about the Mount Union bracket scenario, you actually put Mount Union, and I found this very interesting and crafty to a certain degree, against a non-East region team in the first round. And my thoughts were uh, this. Did the committee do this to at least enable the East region, all the teams of the East region that are in there, to play out against what would be their normal competition in that regional bracket for at least one game to at least allow for victory, unlike Ithaca last year, uh, had a tussle right away uh, with Mount Union. Was Randolph Macon brought in with that consideration in mind as the eighth seed so that at least the East could fulfill one round on its own? Well, the East the East side of the bracket was short a team. There's no question about that. And Randolph Macon and Millsaps and LaGrange are all kind of a long ways away from a little bit of everybody. And with Randolph Macon being the uh, – lowest record team in the in the bracket uh if you were doing a full 32 seeding bracket wouldn't the lowest record in the bracket play the highest ranked team in the all the brackets and so it just happened to work out all right and folks just remind you you are listening to in the huddle on blogtalkradio.com eric ren frank rossi we're joined by dr dick kaiser dick kaiser chairman of the ncaa division three selection committee uh, thank you again very much for joining us, Dr. Kaiser. We also like to remind you we have some guests coming up. Tim Danahy, who's waiting patiently in the queue. He's the Liberty League commissioner, as well as Jeff Sanders. Folks, we have really good, high-quality bonus coverage here with being able to get Dr. Kaiser. So we ask that you stay patient and just you know, allow us to uh, run a little bit over here. There's, you know, We're not going to be able to get to all of our questions. We do have a few we want to get to. I think we'll try Stay with you, Dr. Kaiser, until about 8.30, 8.35, and then we'll have to move on. But thank you very much for uh, joining us tonight. Frank, uh, I'm trying to locate that, that question. I know there's, there's a few other questions here. Um, let me just go back here, Dr. Kaiser. Uh, okay, here we go. Um, I think we actually covered this one, Frank, about the seeding of regional transplants, or, or did we not really cover that? Well, he spoke briefly about it. But, uh, I mean, I actually, you know what, no, specifically, I, I remember this question now. There, there is a question about when you transplant a regional team, uh, like a, I think a few years ago, Johns Hopkins, uh, I think it was, finished uh, maybe 11th uh, overall in the top 25 poll, and yet we're seeded 
seventh in somebody else's region. How do you balance teams when you're transplanting them since you have no real common opponents usually to go and measure them up against? And the numbers aren't exactly easy to use as apples and apples when you're comparing them. What kind of challenge does that pose, and what do you do to alleviate that challenge when you get to it? Well, first of all, we try to uh, – what we try very hard to do is seed the top four teams in the country. So out of the 32 teams, we spent considerable time last night deciding who are the top four teams in the country and if we can then build brackets around those four teams. Mount Union drew the number one seeds. Everyone in our committee believed that uh, Mount Union was the best team in the country. Uh, then there was pretty much consensus that everyone felt that Millsaps was the second best team in the country. Then there was some uh, back and forth play between uh, North Central and Willamette, and Willamette ended up winning. So now we have four teams, and now those are really, there's no regional bracket per se, but those are our four top teams. Now can we build the bracket staying within the NCA's guidelines of mileage and trips and fill up the brackets in an appropriate manner so that we have some kind of seating. So the way it boiled down from there is then we took the teams that were located somewhat close to those four teams and tried to rank them uh, two through eight. And in some cases when you're cross-bracketing, it really depends on where that person might have been bracketed in the in their regional advisory, and then when they got cross-bracketed, are they, in fact, did they come over as a four seed or did they come over as six seed? In the case of Randolph-Macon, they came over as the eighth seed in the south. In fact, they weren't even ranked in the south, so it was an easy rank to put them as the eighth seed into the Mount Union bracket. Um, can I can I interrupt for one second and just clarify that? I just want to make sure I'm understanding it. Uh, it's, uh, and so for our listeners, uh, basically, if you're seventh in the West or what would be the West quote unquote region, and you're moved over to the North, for instance, you're going to be probably placed as the seventh in the North as well, irrespective of the teams in the North. You would probably go over if there's a vacancy and there's a spot. You would probably go over as seventh or potentially even eighth. But what would happen is we as a committee would try to do a comparison between that team that's cross-bracketing from the seventh and potentially the in-region seventh place or the eighth place team, much like we do when there's four teams just across the country that we have nothing in common with. When we try to choose the best team in the country, we still have to look at numbers, games, who they played, strength of schedule, uh, and, you know, sometimes it comes down to just, uh, the you know, all things being equal and no differential between the numbers and, and common opponents. Is Bottom line is, who would you rather play in the playoffs? Who don't you want to draw in that first round? It very seldom comes down to that, but occasionally it might. Dr. Kaiser, I have one final question for you. I think Eric Wren's going to have a couple additional, but... Taking kind of a macro view of things, a lot of people ask the question, and we uh, debate it on this show a lot, what advice do you have for teams across Division Three when they're sitting down attempting to schedule their out-of-conference games? What pointers should they walk away with after seeing tonight's or today's brackets come out? 
what, what would you say to these teams? Like, for instance, just to give background, Hudson, you know, you, you scheduled two out-of-division teams. You lost them. You didn't necessarily expect that, expected that that was going to hurt you, but it probably did at the end of the day, plus your schedule strength wasn't helping. Curry, though, on the other hand, they're 9-1 and in what's normally thought of as kind of a weaker conference, and yet they got in. What's, what's to be learned after these are revealed today and from last year from your experience doing it too that can really be useful to teams that want to be in the NCAA playoffs down the road? I would say, uh, like the case that you mentioned, Curry and Plymouth, they don't have any choice as to who they get a schedule in, in conference, out of conference, because the conference does it. So they can't, we can't penalize them because their conference plays totally with internal, and that's, a, that's an issue that we have to deal with. But for a team like Husson, who uh, scheduled two non-conference division, two games and seven uh, div- division games, but against very poor competition. The NCA has put a significant push and significant emphasis on strength of schedule, the OWP, the OOWP, and I would strongly encourage teams to try to play the best schedule that they can. Obviously, the best way to get in is to win your AQ. I appreciate that. Eric, I know you got some more. Yeah, I've got a few real quick, few, few real quick questions for you, Dr. Kaiser. I'll start off with one of them being pertinent to the actual Liberty League content here. Uh, Hobart, I believe, is hosting Lycoming, I, if I'm reading this bracket correctly, right? They are the uh, higher seed, so they're going to host. What uh, discussions, if any, have, have, have been happening around the condition required for Hobart's field? I don't know if you had any dialogue with anyone on the, you know, at Hobart or, or in the region. It, it sounds like yesterday in that game Hobart had against Rochester, the field was an absolute mess. Lots of rain, lots of mud. People would question if it was going to be capable or worthy of an NCAA postseason game. Does that play into anything? Absolutely. We've already talked with the Hobart people. They've guaranteed the NCA that they will uh, have their field uh, as very playable by this weekend. But that has already been discussed. Okay, and we'll thanks. discuss that with the Coach Craig coming up because I think he has some more to say about that uh, over at Hobart. So stay tuned for uh, those Hobart fans that want to know more about that question. Go ahead, Eric. Um, the other question is, uh, if if things have played out a little different yesterday, say Cortland wins against Ithaca, does that have them as the number one seed in the East and potentially not moving Mount Union over? Or is Mount Union or someone else still coming over even if Cortland wins that game? Um, that's a pretty good question, and I'm not sure I can answer it, but it would, it, had they gone undefeated, um, it would be a little harder to bring a team uh, cross division over. Uh, still, we, we remember that we choose the top four teams in the country and build the brackets around them. So if Cortland had not been one of the top four teams in the country, then there's a possibility they would still be in the same situation, in the same area that they're in. If they had been chosen undefeated as one of the top four teams in the country, then that probably would not have occurred. So, I mean, you kind of treat this the way the NCAA basketball, men's division one basketball tournament does it. You just take the best four teams and try and spread them out. I mean, are you trying to set up a potential final four, for lack of a better term, between the best four teams in the country, I mean, even if it's not in their geographical region? Right. Yeah. What we're trying to do is, okay, let if it's at all possible, Let's choose the top four teams in the country, and if they win out and everything works the way it's supposed to, 
and nobody has an upset, then we should have these four teams in the semifinals, and then whoever wins those semifinals will advance. And as you can see in the bracket, the Mount Union bracket will uh, play the uh, North Central bracket for the opportunity, if it goes all the way out there into the semifinals, to go to the finals, and then the Willamette bracket and the Millsap bracket. Well, so is it really becoming semantics now? Because you you have you call these the East, the North, you know, geographic brackets, but in reality, you're really seeding the top four teams and building brackets around them, are you not? I mean, if Cortland if Cortland wins quote unquote the East and they're the best team in the East, should they not be rewarded with the number one seeding in that bracket? Uh, it's not an East bracket, though. Again, they would have had to been, and I don't know if they would have been, and and, and because. We didn't have to get to that point, but they would have had to been one of the top four teams in the country to get as a bracket and have people built around them. Okay, and then here's another question from someone on a more national basis. Is there a feeling, I'm going to paraphrase this question, is there a feeling to identify teams that deserve a home game or a couple home games when you see these brackets? I mean, do you look at these teams in the, the top 25 and say, okay, we want to get – these kind of teams' home games? We try to as much as possible. Once we've chosen the four top teams, and then we try to seed as much as possible the remaining seven teams in the bracket with the top three uh, other teams in that bracket that they fill into as home teams, um, and we try to do that off of their regional rankings. So is it is there a potential movement underway at some point to rename brackets? I mean, are they officially called though an East? There's an East bracket. There's a you know North. No. All regional boundaries are broke down uh, once we chose the 32 teams, and they become the. We actually called them last night: Pool One, Pool Two, Pool Three, and Pool Four, and then. Fit the teams. The top pool, top team went into pool one. The top, second best team in the country went in pool two, pool three, and pool four. And we've been doing this now for three years, uh, attempting to become more uh, away from the regional organization and more into trying to to get the best teams seated in the best teams' opportunity to get to the national championship. All right. Well, one question. One, one question, uh, just based on that, real quick, though. Actually, Eric, uh, I just thought of as uh, he said it, uh, Dr. Kaiser, why even deal with regional then for the rest of the year if the regional boundaries break down once we get to this point? I mean, this was more of a grand question on an NCAA-wide scale, I guess. But at the same time, if we're losing those boundaries, why even have the boundaries from day one? For instance, why should Mount Union versus St. John Fisher or St. John Fisher versus Salisbury be an out-of-region game that might count somewhat differently during analysis? You know, you've got a really good question. <laughs> I'm not sure I can answer it, but with you, if you take a look at how the, the NCA is expanding what regions are and what states you can play and conferences and stuff like that, there's less and less out-of-region games than there ever was before. The original intent of the NCA to do in-region games was to get teams from traveling all over the country uh, playing various contests and um, 
and trying to get them to play more of their local contests. But that's that's much easier said in sports like basketball or soccer where you play twice as many games. It's significantly less more uh, – it's much more difficult when you only play ten games. Well, to that point, we do have a full queue of other guests. We want to try and keep everyone on schedule tonight. Hey, Dr. Kaiser, I'm actually going to give you one thing here for being a guest on the show. He's been waiting to use this for weeks. That's that's our round of applause from all of our listeners, Dr. Kaiser, who really appreciate you joining us tonight to, to take time out of your busy schedule to Help us make a little bit of sense out of some things that don't always make sense to the, the average, you know, fan of Division Three football. So, truly, we are honored and privileged to have you join us on our show, and we so we really appreciate it. Thank you very much for all that you guys do, and for the promotion of Division Three, and particularly Division Three football. Um, it's a great, it's a great game, it's a great sport, and obviously the fan interest in Division Three has grown significantly during the past. Uh, decade, and it's it's growing more and more each year. So thanks, Bye. Thanks, guys. That was Dr. Dick Thank Kaiser, you. chairman of NCAA Division Three Selection Committee. Join us tonight in the huddle. We're going to come up back in just 30 seconds with Tim Day, Commissioner of Liberty League. But first, we're going to take a real quick message from one of our biggest supporters, Mr. Pat Coleman, D3Football.com. All season long, let D3Football.com be your home for all the Division Three football action on the road to the Stag Bowl. From interactive blogs and message boards to columns from around the region and around the nation on your favorite teams, nobody covers NCAA Division Three better than D3Football.com. As the playoffs approach, get the scoop on who's in and who's out from the experts who picked all 32 teams last year. Don't go anywhere else. Get the info from the source for Division Three football at www.D3Football.com. are in the huddle the only weekly talk show devoted to NCAA division three liberty league conference college football and now back to studio one in saratoga springs new york your hosts eric red and frank rossi and we are back here on in the huddle on a sunday night and we really do again appreciate uh dick kaiser dr dick kaiser from defiance college the uh, ncaa Division Three football committee chair who uh, was up till four in the morning and then some uh, trying to get things together for the uh, different brackets. We apologize to the remainder of our guests because uh, he called in a little late and we had so many questions. Where we have to push a little late here, but we're going to get everybody in. We still have 50 minutes in the show, and we have three guests remaining. Let's start uh, with uh, Liberty League Commissioner Tim uh, Danahy. Uh, you are back in the huddle with us, sir. You are our first uh, two-time guest, uh, other than uh, our good friend James Baker, who's the Hobart College guru. So uh, congratulations on that accolade alone. It's got to be an exciting night for you. Oh, I guess so. Uh, thanks, guys. Appreciate <laughs> yeah, sorry about keeping you on hold like that. I hope you can hear the show okay, though, from your phone. No, I could, and I was, I was you know, really uh, interested to hear Dr. Kaiser's comments and, and certainly defer to him uh, he had a tougher weekend than I did, uh, so I, I, I was uh, happy to, to be able to listen to his commentary on, on what happened uh, in, well, I guess, what I was calling the East Region, but we'll, I guess I'll call it the Mount well, Union Region now. Hey, you've got to be uh, proud of the it's Commissioner of the Liberty League. You know, we start this little show, you join us a couple times, next thing you know, we got the NCAA you know, chairman for Division Three on the phone with us. You know, not bad for our little conference, huh? 
Well, on 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 today he he ranks ahead of me, so uh, that that that's good. Oh, come on. Well, Liberty League Commissioner Tim uh, Danahy, what did you think of yesterday's action in Liberty Liberty League football? Let's start there, and then let's go season wide and playoff bound uh, wise. But what did you think of yesterday? For goodness sakes. Well, I think yesterday was was just a microcosm of of the season as a whole. Um, there's there's no days off for anybody in this league. Anybody can beat anybody. Um, you know, te- teams that uh, are are expected to win don't necessarily do so. Uh, if you do, then then you have to grind it out. There's there's hard fought victories. Uh, every victory in this league is hard fought. Uh, there, there's it's just it's a testament to the, the work that's done through all the all the coaches in our league. Uh, and the caliber of, of the teams that we have, uh, looking at that. So, and yesterday was certainly uh, that in a nutshell. Was was four very close games. Yeah, yeah, Tim, you made a subtle point, and there's some chats going on back and forth in our, in our chat room, and and you know between the comment you made and the folks comments other people are making, I, I think uh, I'm a little bit surprised. Did you realize it wasn't labeled geographic brackets? I just had this confirmed for me by someone else in the know here, and it, it, these are not geographical brackets they're just bracket one bracket two um it, it sounds like the ncaa and i wasn't aware of this it's an interesting topic here it sounds like the ncaa just wants to take the top four teams divvy them up and have a format kind of like hoops mm-hmm. well i guess i've you know dealing with the ncaa in in many sports not just football uh there seems to be a little something different for each sport and each sport seems to do something a little different every year so Really, nothing that uh, you know comes out of the NCA that they're they're doing this or they're doing that, and that's a change from last year. N- none of that comes as, as a surprise to me, and I don't think it should. Uh, you know, as as situations evolve and and you learn more, uh, you know, the committees and and the staff at the NCA learn a little more every time they go through go through the process each year. They they do make adjustments. Uh, you know, the NCA is is obviously bound by. The, the conditions they have to to try and and uh, reduce the uh, the travel, especially the flight travel, as much as they can. Um, and I think they're just they're just doing what they're able to within those constrictions to to maintain bracket integrity uh, to the extent they're able. So I, I applaud those efforts. Uh, I don't think that semantics in terms of what one what one region or one quarter of the bracket might be called as, as opposed to another one uh, is really a big a big factor there. We've got Tim Danahy, Liberty League Commissioner, in the huddle with us. Jeff Sanders will be coming up from Hobart with your senior linebacker, and also Coach Mike Craig from Hobart. Uh, they will discuss uh, things like the field conditions, the game yesterday against Rochester, and their uh, chances against Lycoming and perhaps Mount Union in a round two matchup. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Tim, what do you you bring up the fact that you're not just a football guy? So let's let's look at your macro view of your job. Uh, what do you do in terms of promotions for these teams when it comes to playoff time? Uh, what does the Liberty League try to do, and how do we promote the teams to get more attention from the various committees than they might otherwise get when it comes down to these types of selections that are either objective or subjective in some cases? Well, you know, Dr. Kaiser referred to the, the RACs, the Regional Advisory Committees, and, and every league – uh, in the country has a representative on those committee uh, on those committees. The current representative from our league on that committee is is Scott Green, the head coach at Rochester. Um, and really, the you know the, the burden is on him. He's he's directly involved in that process and 
it's the role that, that the league representatives play on those committees to, to be an advocate for the, the teams in their league. Uh, you know, certainly, obviously, the the AQ team coming out of, of each league uh, doesn't doesn't need a lot of advocacy uh, in terms of getting into the tournament, but they could, could still be, um, you know, their, their seed could be affected by that. Um, so, you know, that's... The commissioners, unless they're a member of of the of the selection committees, are are not directly involved in the process. Um, so you know, it, there's there's really nothing that that we do from our office uh, to to directly affect that. But obviously, um, you know, we we just make sure, uh, again, through our representatives on, on the various committees, that uh, that everybody's aware of, of what's going on. Um, and, I, and I don't think there's a problem with that. I think it's still Eric Wren's question, uh, so uh, he's going to be mad at me now. I was going to ask you more of the along the lines of what do you do on selection, you know, Saturday or Sunday, you know, what role do you have? You kind of answered it. I do have one question, though. Tim, I mean, how disappointed are you that, you know, Liberty League's only sending one team? Do you feel that that means it's a down year for the Liberty League when we send one team to the NCAAs? I don't think so. I Look, it's a a two-edged coin here. Um, You know, obviously we – We'd like to have more than one team in the tournament, but the reason we don't have more than one team is goes back to the parity within the league. Um, you know, you can't. Unfortunately, you can't have it both both ways uh, in, in this. We we want we want to have that parity in the league. We want every league game to be exciting. We want we want every league game to be something that 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 has those effects. Um, and if you have that, then then chances are you're going to have a, a situation like this year where um, you know, with, with the exception of Hobart, every other team in the league had had at least two losses within the league. Um, you know that that hurts us in terms of advancing teams into the NCAA tournament. But I think it is it goes back to the the testament uh, of the strength of of all the teams within our league. So um, certainly from from the national standpoint, it's you know we're not going to say we're we're happy to ha- only have one team in the league, but um, we understand the reason the reasons why we don't. Um, I, I guess you know if if, uh, if we only had one team in, in the league because uh, we had maybe a team that was a one-loss team within the league um, and had lost some non-conference games, that might be disappointing. But but the fact that um, you know those those losses for those teams researching came within the league um, is of some comfort. I, I guess is is the way to put it. It's you know, again, a testament to um, to the parity within the league. Uh, fair enough question. Fair enough answer there uh, to uh, Eric's question. It's not, it's not easy uh, right now. I'll tell you, with looking at a national view of all the teams that are in Division Three, it is not easy, and it's getting harder and harder. It seems like to be able to field conferences that get to at least two teams into uh, these playoffs. Now there's only six pool C bids, basically. And it makes things a lot harder. So your job's not going to get any easier there, uh, Tim. I, I hate to break the news to you on uh, that front. But uh, let's look at Hobart. And, uh, you know, they could draw, kind of uh, transitioning here in a second to our guests, they could, they did draw like homing. We know that much at home. And then they could draw Mount Union. What does that do to the landscape of the Liberty League if they do face off? Against the Mount Union team, will you attend that type of game? Are you, what do you what do you look at that game as uh, potentially if it were to happen? Well, I mean, certainly it's you know as Dr. Kaiser said, I guess Mount Union is you know, 
you know the, the overall number one seed in the tournament. So so certainly, um, you know Hobart would would be going to that game uh, as an underdog. Um, you know if, if Hobart were were able to and and again not to to look past Lycoming certainly. No, uh, and I'm sure I'm going to get a, I'm going to get an earful about this. Uh, I'm they, sure they, when they uh, Coach Crack comes down. You know, in the same respect, uh, not for Mount Union to look look past Randolph Macon. Obviously, Mount Union at ten and zero, and Randolph Macon at six and four. Uh, you know, th- those numbers speak for themselves. But you know, th- there's no easy games in this NCAA tournament. Um, you know, what 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 would a win over Mount Union do uh, for the Liberty League? What what would a win over Mount Union do for for anybody uh, in Division Three football? It would certainly be. A statement uh, of of a great kind. Uh, Would you liken that almost to like an Appalachian State, Michigan? I mean, obviously, we're all in the same division, but it seems to take on that aura about it. I mean, there's this this mental, you know, block. I think a lot of teams have over Mount Union. Well, you know, there is, and that's. I'm glad uh, you know that I don't have to be uh, the, the coach at Randolph making this week, or or potentially Coach Craig next week, uh, trying to prepare the team for that, but. Uh, you know, Mount the score is zero zero when you start the football game, and and they're playing under the same rules as anybody else. And you know what? The, the only team that's got a chance to beat them on any day is the team that's taking the field against them. So, um, would you rather be that team, or would you rather be sitting at home right now? Um, you know, I think if they have the opportunity to, if you ask Coach Craig at the beginning of the season, uh, you know, hey, Coach, you're you're going to get into the NCAA tournament. Uh, you know, you're, we'll give you a first-round win in your second games against Mount Union, at Mount Union. He'd probably take it. Uh, maybe you couldn't ask that question of him later. I don't want to put words in his mouth, certainly. But um, what do you think of you Coach Craig's uh, job the last five years, Tim? I mean, this is five years in a row he's got his team into the NCAA playoffs. What does that say about that program that, that some people tend to overlook until they actually look at the numbers and what they've done? Well, I, I think that you know that really speaks for itself. Uh, having having the team into the NCAA tournament five years in a row, you, you guys just referred to how that is that is becoming increasingly difficult to do. Um, you know, particularly with the you know the, the reduction in the number of available pool C bids. Uh, it, it, you know, if, you, if you're not able to secure the automatic qualifier out of the Liberty League, and that in itself is becoming a more and more difficult thing to do. Um, you know your, your second chance there in Pool C is, is getting harder and harder. So to to have a streak of five years in a row, and I would defer to to you guys or Pat Coleman to see how many other teams have been in there five years in a row. Uh, I think that really speaks for itself. East of the well, Mississippi, not a lot. <laughs> hey uh, Tim, I apologize. We could sit just like with Dr. Kaiser. We could keep you on, you know, for a long time here. But unfortunately, we do have to fulfill our commitments to our next couple guests. Um, Tim, I just want to personally thank you for helping lend your, uh, you know, your support here, joining us a couple times, you know, even letting us, you know, use references to Liberty League and things in, in our website, you know, st- and stuff like that. So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having your support this year, and we really look forward to uh, winding this back up next year and having you involved. Absolutely, guys. We we certainly appreciate, uh, you know, the, the work you guys have done, the great, great program and, and great promotion for our league. So. Uh, thanks again for the work that you've done. Folks, that was Tim Danahy, Liberty League Commissioner. On, a, on an executive night, we had uh, Dick, Dr. Dick Kaiser, now Tim Danahy, join us. So I'm going to segue to our next guest, and we're actually going to change the format a little bit for the interest of time. we only got 36 minutes left. So I'm going to bring both of our next guests on together, which I think we can do that just because 
hey, they're from, they're from the same school. Linebacker Jeff Sanders from Hobart, as well as coach, head coach Mike Craig. I'm going to put those guys on at the same time. We're going to plow through it that way. But I think this will work out just fine. And we're also going to bring our Hobart guru, Mr. James Baker, on. Boy, it's, it's Hobart time now in the last 36 minutes of our show. But fitting, very fitting, the uh, Liberty League representative for the, you know, making the NCAA playoffs now for the fifth year in a row. It's an awesome achievement. So we're going to take us out for the rest of the show by bringing on Jeff Sanders, senior linebacker, and Coach Mike Craig. You guys with us? Uh, this is Jeff. You, I'm here. Frank, I'm here also. This is Mike. Hey, Coach, this is Eric Wren. Thanks for joining us. We're here with Frank Ross, Eric Wren, the huddle. Uh, and I believe, James Baker, are you on as well, our resident Hobart uh, analyst? I guess, yeah, if that's what you want to call me. <laughs> you were voted, just so you know, you were voted this week in the uh, – the uh, poll, the new title for you now is the Frank Rossi of Hobart. So congratulations. I'm sorry, James. I'm very sorry. Thanks, guys. <laughs> so, Coach, Coach and Jeff, congratulations. On, I know you had a tight, tight game yesterday, but congratulations on hanging on and, and representing the Liberty League and the NCAAs. I tell you, it's starting to become old hat for you guys. Coach, uh, what, you, you got to throw up a new achievement on the board because, you know, getting to the dances, this is getting kind of commonplace for you, huh? Uh, you Put me in the dance anytime, and you'll hear me screaming and hooting and hollering for that one. But uh, can we go further, and can we continue to set those goals even higher? You bet we can, and uh, and we're going to continue to do that also. Coach, to that point, I mean, I know everyone who gets into the NCAAs, that's an achievement in and of itself. You know, folks are, are happy to be there, but, you know, it goes beyond that, especially now that you guys have been there several years in a row. You want to just – do more than just get in. And to that point, I think you overheard the conversation with uh, Dr. Kaiser about, you know, bracketology, what we'll call it, and, you know, kind of news to me as far as how they've decided to start doing things, which is really treated as, as team-based brackets and, and divvying it up like that. What is your thought about now that it seems two years in a row to get to the final, you know, to get to the national semifinals? The, the, the road to winning a national championship now seems to go through Mount Union, even if you're coming out of the East. Well... I hate that uh, <clears throat> they started doing that because I think the East is tough enough. And honestly, if the way I looked at it is uh, Cortland wins yesterday over Ithaca. Cortland gets a one seed. Ithaca, uh, Mount Union does not come into the East, and Hobart will get the two seed out of it, and uh, we get two home games. So at least that's the way I, I, I pictured it in my mind. When the upsets started happening yesterday, uh, I, I knew that they were going to. We didn't have an undefeated team uh, to be to get the AQ, and I knew they were going to bump the mount into our bracket. So uh, it is what it is, you know. Give me a chance to take them in a, another week from now, and uh, I'll be hooting and hollering, and we'll find a way to take them down too. Well, the reality of it is, coach, to, to, to realize your goal of winning a national championship, you're going to have to play them at some point anyway, right? Yes, they're, um, unfortunately, they're going to have to play us sometime, so they might as well just get it out of the way the second half. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Coach, uh, Frank Rossi here. For those just joining us, we have Jeff Sanders and Coach Mike Craig from Hobart in the huddle. Jeff, uh, I've got plenty of questions for you. Don't worry. We're, we're not going to let you uh, go short, but we, we want to take a couple other uh, things up with Coach Craig real quick. First off, you guys, uh, I have an announcement that you have moved up to number 23 nationally in the D3Football.com Top 25 poll, so congratulations with that. 
and hopefully uh, we'll see you just move up the charts as uh, these playoffs go uh, on and on. And uh, as you brought up uh, the possibility of maybe hosting two home games if you were in the two-seat coach, but uh, that begs the question that we had asked Dr. Kaiser earlier, uh, and there have been discussions between the NCAA and Hobart, but why don't we make it public what's been discussed and what's going to happen to the best that you know. The field took a beating yesterday. With the rain, it turned into a mud bowl of sorts. Uh, Ted Baker even referenced it in the field goal call we had earlier. What is the condition of the field, and where or how will that game be played at Hobart next week? Well, you know, I was asked on the NCAA committee how is the field, and uh, honestly, the field's not in great shape right now, but we're a week away from having to play a game. I remember uh, playing a game in the NCAA tournament against John Carroll here at Hobart College, and the field was maybe twice as bad as it is right now. So I feel very, very confident that, you know, that we're going to be able to have this game here and that we're not going to have any problem with that. Now, is there a chance it may possibly move to Makui uh, and we play on a turf and get that game ready to play over there? Honestly, that's fine with us. Uh, stripe the parking lot and we'll play them in there. As long as we get the home game and uh, they're traveling to our place and our players get to do everything as status quo, just like it's a regular home game, that's, the more we keep it as normal as possible, the better it's going to be for our team. So practice times, everything will kind of stay the same. But uh, as far as the field, uh, Mr. Hanna, the athletic director, Mike Hanna, and Dave Einsello, who's in charge of uh, the, the fields, they'll be meeting tomorrow, and they'll be uh, making a final determination whether uh, Boswell, they can get that up and going, or if they, we want to shift it over to McCooey and uh, play it over there on the turf field. Okay, now we've talked about the administrative end of playing on a muddy field. Let's talk about the fun part of it. Uh, Jeff, what did you think of playing on that field yesterday, and at what point do you just say to yourself, ah, heck, I'm I'm dirty beyond belief as it is. It doesn't matter anymore. Well, uh, before the game, we addressed it uh, with Coach Craig, and we said, you know, both teams have to go out and play on the same surface. I personally like to go and play in those games. I've had a couple here at Hobart these last four or five years, uh, I actually think it's the most fun to play And You come off the field, hopefully with a victory as we did yesterday and the years before. You know, you're covered in mud. You get to hug your family members and your fans, and, and they get to really see what football really is all about. Uh, I mean, I love the turf and everything, but in my view, football is supposed to be played on grass, and I love to do it. Well, you had two fumble recoveries and 15 tackles to go with it leading your team yesterday, so there must be something to your love of the mud or something. Coach, you might want to just go out and water the field every game uh, from here on out uh, that you might have uh, coming up with Jeff uh, because he's been playing lights out. Tell us about Jeff uh, while he's on the phone with us here, uh, not to embarrass him here, but Jeff uh, obviously didn't play too much last year with an injury, in fact, in the first game of the season and came back for his fifth year high expectations, and he seems to have met every one of them and exceeded them. Tell us about Jeff Sanders, who's been around for all five of these playoff runs now that Hobart has had in the last five years, or this being the fifth year. Yeah, we're going to have to keep Jeff around even to be a mascot to make sure we can continue this now. Uh, <laughs> Jeff, uh, his, not even talking about what he does on the field, what he does off the field as a leader of this football team, uh, a three-time Hobart football captain. Uh, it's, 
he's a remarkable person, and we're very fortunate to have him. And I'll tell you, as uh, he kept coming back from the injury, uh, you know, as the season would wear on, Jeff's actual speed and stuff would start to slow a little bit or start to lose a little bit uh, from the wear and tear of the season onto the leg. And actually, right now, he is playing his best football uh, as we're getting ready to go out and take on Lycoming. Jeff's uh, just got the game ball for, for last game against uh, the win against Rochester, mm-hmm. and he's playing our best football. He and Justin Hager, the in, two inside linebackers, there's not a team in the country has two better inside linebackers than Hobart does. So we're extremely proud uh, of everything that Jeff brings to the table for us, both on and off the field. Hey, James Baker, I, I see in the chat room I was throwing up some uh, comments here about uh, Jeff from being uh, from Camden, New York. I think you know a thing or two about Jeff and Camden, New York. Why don't you pipe in here? <laughs> uh, thanks, guys. Well, you know, just congratulations to, to both Jeff and, and Coach Craig. I mean, I had a very brief and uh, somewhat terrible football career at Hobart College, but uh, the job that that Coach has done, taking over for the late Bill Maxwell, is just nothing. Been uh, it's been spectacular and. As an alum and as a fan, it's been great to watch the program uh, do a great job. And yes, one of my uh, one of my old college girlfriends was from uh, from Camden. She lived on Main Street with her family, uh, right in the center of town. So I, I've been to Camden, New York, a lot. I imagine Jeff was probably still a little guy when I was hanging around there over ten years ago. But um, it, it, it's a pleasure to hear their voices and, and wish them the best in the playoffs. Well, uh, quick question uh, in terms of Lycoming. Uh, Coach, when we talked earlier uh, on the phone, you kind of suggested that you started to look at Lycoming, but by the time we talked tonight, you know a lot more about them. Have you held true to that? I mean, what, what have you learned the last three hours that you didn't maybe know three hours ago? Oh, just uh, starting to dig through their personnel and uh, starting to uh, analyze each person. Uh, the starters and the backups, and see where they're at, uh, where are they coming from. Uh, trying to, you know, e- it's very easy to look on the paper and see the height and weight, but you need to see how they move and uh, what they're like. And you know, honestly, they're big. They're very big. They're very strong, and they're a smash mouth football team. Uh, it reminds me of playing uh, like Cortland a few years ago when we played them in the NCAA tournament. Uh, Fortunately, we have uh, some looks on uh, on Lycoming as far as we're getting the last three films, and we'll be able to break all those down uh, tonight and tomorrow. But uh, I know that this what kind of a football team we're going up against. And defensively, hey, they're very good. They, when you have a team that can sit in their base defense, which is a 4-3 cover two, and and just play that, and say, go ahead, we're good enough to stop you because we're in this and, and we're going to show you. And then when you get down in the red zone, that's basically the, when the time that they're pressuring. So uh, when you have a team good enough to be able to do that, you know that uh, they're a good football team. So I expect another great game. We have nothing but uh, very close games and uh, just try to find ways to dig them out and uh, – and to win them at the end, and I expect nothing to change or nothing to be any different uh, this Saturday. 
And again, folks, you're listening to In the Huddle on blogtalkradio.com. Eric Ren, Frank Rossi, joined by head coach Mike Craig from Hobart, as well as, well as senior linebacker Jeff Sanders and James Baker, our, one of our Hobart analysts. Uh, great show tonight so far, lots of great guests, and we're paying tribute here to the Liberty League champion, Hobart. You know, the end of the show here, toward the end of the show, we're spending time with you guys. Uh, I have a question here for Jeff. Jeff, t- talk to us about, you know, this this game against Rochester, you played the other day, very close contest, you know, a rivalry game for you guys. You come into it, you know, nip and tuck at the end of the game, you pull it out. Did the same kind of scenario a week ago uh, against RPI. Close game, lots of big plays. You win the, that one at the end. Did the RPI game take anything out of you guys physically for this week as far as, you know, were you kind of worn down or was there any – you know, I guess for lack of a better term, hangover from that game coming into this game. Uh, I don't. I don't think so. Uh, we we go through some pretty rigorous workouts in practice. We do a lot of running, a lot of lifting during the week. So I would say that we're in the best shape of our lives right now. I know defense was on the field for quite a bit in the first half in that in that RPI game, and uh, you know I looked around at all the faces on the sideline, and nobody really had that look on their face like I don't want to play anymore. I'm too tired, and that's in, in the fourth quarter when guys still have that fire in their eyes and they're still passionate about what they're doing. Uh, I think that actually having a close game like that with such an opponent like RPI actually got us fired up to go into U of R and not, and not you know, rest on our laurels for this game because we knew how much, how much it meant because the win in RPI would have been absolutely hollow had we lost this U of R game. You know, just a follow-on question for that RPI game. It actually comes to us from the chat room, and this is for Coach Craig. Coach, one of our uh, viewers or listeners is asking about the fact uh, you were very pumped to play RPI. You were very confident. I think they're referring to uh, one of the newspaper articles where you had re- said, you know, you feel pretty confident you can go down there and win. Why, I guess as a coach, you're going to be confident, but what what kind of led you to, to have that extra layer to say, you know, you've, before you weren't so sure, but now you thought you can go in there and win? Honestly, it was a couple things. One is that defensively we started playing much better football going, just starting to go into that game. The last couple games just getting ready to go into RPI. And RPI has an, just a great explosive offense. So I knew defensively we had to, to be at the top of our game to be able to beat them. And special teams-wise, uh, I thought we destroyed them, and special teams is why we beat U of R also. So I felt very good about uh, the defense was clicking now. And quite honestly, offensively, we lost a couple real key stars for us, and it set us back a little bit. But they still find ways to be able to to make it happen, whether uh, Coach DeWall's uh, – drawing up something in the mud for those guys and uh, showing them how to get it done. But, you know, we have complete confidence. They bailed us out uh, on the defensive side a number of times this year, and now we're able to return that favorite for them because we're playing uh, and hitting on all cylinders right now. So I knew when the defense was playing well, and I knew when our special teams were uh, starting to click that uh, we would have a a great chance to go down there and to take them, especially since we've had – Good success against RPI down there before, anyways. Yeah, I mean, special teams were huge. You blocked a punt for a touchdown. You blocked an RPI field goal. You take those two plays out of the game. If those don't happen, you know, you're looking at actually the other end of a score deficit there. So definitely 
time to step up you did in the special team, so, you know, great job there. Actually, looking ahead now, I think um, who better to kind of put the ball in their hands than, than James here on the phone, our, our Hobart analyst for In the Huddle. James, I think um, you, you have some questions looking ahead now to the playoffs. Yeah, one of the things uh, about this year's team, obviously the defense has done a great job uh, keeping the keeping the games close and coming up with big plays, but one of the knocks against Hobart is that they do struggle against teams with strong rushing attacks right now. You're allowing close to 150 yards rushing a game. Um, Sondager from Rochester had about 100 yards against you guys last Saturday, and, and you're going to be going up against a, a Lycoming team uh, this Saturday that – uh, averages about 130 yards rushing per game. What do you guys look to do on defense to improve against these strong rushing teams? You know, it, it's difficult to be able to to go back to the drawing board, to be able to change everything within the, the next few practices that you have and just come up with this miracle thing that's going to make uh, your rush defense uh, go from okay to be uh, becoming great. Uh, We've got the people to do it, uh, you know, and if you show it to them and break it down for them on what they're trying to accomplish and then you challenge them and say, okay, are you singled block or doubled on this? You're singled, then you should have to come off to make this play. So you challenge them that way, and then we try to find a scheme or two that we can uh, throw in there, a twist that uh, might surprise Lyco and uh, that our players will understand and be able to execute to try to slow down their run. But, you know, there's no miracle thing that's going to happen, and all of a sudden we're going to become a, a great run-stopping team. So uh, it is what it is, and we'll just find a way, no matter uh, how it is, to uh, to take them down and to uh, win the ball game. Great, thanks. And, uh, Jeff, uh, this is James again. I had a quick question for you. Um, can you talk about the the difference on you know some of the outside linebackers? Obviously, I mean you and, and Justin Hager have gotten a lot of coverage. You, you lead the nation in tackles, at least in the top ten or top twenty, something like that, and are potential All America candidates, in my opinion. But could you talk a little bit about you know Orlando Patterson and Ryan Robinson and the job that they've done this year playing on the outside? Both Orlando and Ryan are outstanding players, and I. I I've seen I've played with some really great outside linebackers here uh in my years and there's not there's nobody that I would trust more than number 11 and Orlando out there when I see Ryan and Orlando playing it gives me confidence as an inside linebacker to know that I if I get my job done they'll be taking care of theirs they're two outstanding players I can't say enough for what they do for our team uh, again, we've got uh, Jeff Sanders and Coach Mike Craig from Hobart in the huddle. Uh, it's 9:12 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, for those of you listening live, we have about 15 minutes, 18 minutes left in the broadcast. We want to get to some predictions later, so we have a few more questions for you guys. Uh, Coach, I'm going to play a little bit of Bill's advocate first, uh, and then I got one for Jeff as well. Uh, you know, the offense has taken a while in the last, I want to say, four, at least four out of five games, maybe three out of four games probably, actually, uh, to score touchdowns. Uh, it took basically three quarters and change before you guys were able to score against uh, Merchant Marine Academy. Uh, this week against Rochester, it took a little while, probably about three quarters or thereabouts also. Uh, are you concerned at all, especially now with a compounding problem with uh, the injury that Doyle suffered a little bit, 
are, are you concerned about your offense's production, especially heading into the playoffs? I know you're winning games, but you're winning games close. I know it doesn't matter how pretty they are, but are you concerned? You bet. Uh, you know, we are concerned because you'd want the offense to be clicking the way it did the year before, the year before that when, you know, you had like an Andrew Strom and you had all the guys and they're chucking the ball over the place and throwing up 38 and 48 points. I mean, it's awesome to be on that. That's not the case. You know, we've been there five years in a row, but each one of those teams have a different personality. And, uh, you know, when we go down to Kings Point, you know, it the is just very, very windy. And defensively, we found out that we were going to be able to match up with them real fast, and they were going to have a hard time moving the ball on us. So we, so you know, you could, I can talk with Coach DeWall and let him know that, so he can play more conservative, and you know, he doesn't need a lot of points. He doesn't have to do gambling. So he and I are able to talk, and we're able to express that. And then, you know, we come home and. We're in a game, and all of a sudden now we get uh, two of our key players going out, and then Rich has been banged up, so we're going down to RPI, and we don't have all the bolts in our gun. But, you know, we're, we're what, what is What is Rich's uh, condition? To, to stop you for one second, what is Rich's condition? I, I think that was a question I just saw in the chat room when I looked up. Uh, I know he came back into the game for Doug Bella yesterday, but what is his overall condition? Is he 100%? I, you know, Rich right now has a second-degree separation, uh, separated shoulder. He didn't practice, did not take one snap last week, and quite honestly, I'd be surprised if he does this week. But I won't be at all surprised if he lines up uh, behind our center and he's taking the snaps on Saturday. Now, does that hurt us with the timing and him not being out there and working with the team? Sure it does, but it's not like it's the beginning of the season where, you know, everyone's getting used to each other. They know uh, what he's like and what he's uh, doing back there. So uh, you'd like to have uh, that timing and everything going, but it probably won't happen this week. But I won't be surprised at all if come Saturday he's uh, behind the center and he's the quarterback for us. And, Jeff, a question for you. I I want to look backwards a little bit. Why did you pick Hobart, which was not, let's say, uh, as successful as a, uh, of a program as it is today when you decided to go there? Uh, the, obviously, the automatic qualifier system started, I think, in your first year, so uh, things were a little more hodgepodge in terms of Division Three football. But why did you choose Coach Craig's program of Hobart? Well, to begin with, the uh, I was recruited by Coach DeWall. He was my my head recruiting coach, and he was nothing but respectful and showed me he was he just showed me the most respect i I could have asked for a coach i I had several coaches from several different schools not showing me that much respect and putting pressure on me to try and commit early when I was still kind of in limbo with what I wanted to do and then um further on down the road of recruiting uh coach Craig and Coach Wall actually made a couple trips to my house and were very cordial with my family. Uh, taking the time to reach out and talk to them and get to know them personally and not just me as a player, not just just Jeff Sanders when he puts on the helmet, but Jeff Sanders as a person and my family as well, which is very important to me, to be able to reach out to my family and and have a relationship with them. That that, that really hit home with me. And I came up here on my visit and just saw the way they ran their program, and it it was solid. And it was something that I could respect 
and something I could buy into, and I think that's very important as a high school recruit that you have to buy into what you're about to get into for the next four years of your life because it really is one of the most important decisions that you're going to make. And, and from everything I've read and seen about you, uh, you've uh, added to that uh, whole environment, so it, kudos to you on that. James, I know you've got some more questions. Um, yeah, just a, a, a couple uh, more out of curiosity. I, I, I noticed that uh, obviously last year with Andy Strom and, and coming into the season in the media guide that there were a couple of recruits from uh, the uh, the JUCO national champions up at the College of San Francisco. I, it, it's you know living in LA for the last ten years. It's nice to see that you know Hobart's expanding into California. Where where did you guys uh, you know find find these kids from California and get them to upstate New York? Uh, that's from starting with uh, having some great alums, which we have all over the country, and uh, they were actually the ones that uh, let us know about uh, the great football out there and that they were playing, and uh, the alums actually talked with them and uh, introduced them to uh, Hobart College, and from there we kind of just jumped on board. So uh, it happens, and uh, we're fortunate. You know, that's the difference between uh, – the Division One and Division Three. That in Division Three, uh, the alums can be involved in it. Where Division One, they have to be completely away from it. So uh, that's why we were very fortunate, and we've uh, been able to get some great young men. Coach, did you Coach, do your job reading between the lines. That's your way of telling James he needs to get on the stick and start uh, <laughs> doing some recruiting for you. So my question James. Our Hobart analyst lives out there. I mean, come on, how much? farther reaching can the show get here <laughs> seriously start doing your job yeah I'll, I'll do what i can i haven't been to too many games i've had a couple of babies in the last few years but i will i will get back out there and, and starting to send people out as soon as possible um, in, including you know, your son someday right because uh from what i he heard on the phone the other day it sounds like that's a linebacker and waiting he, he he is. He's got an Irish first name, and uh, he's got a Hobart football banner up in his in his room above his crib, so he's ready to go. But uh, <laughs> one, one last quick question for Coach Craig. Uh, it's been a long time, but uh, what, you know, what do you what have you learned from you know working with the uh, with the late Coach Maxwell that you've taken with you in your career during this uh, amazing run you've had with Hobart football? Yeah, it was so amazing to have a man like that. To come in to be able to learn from I had a chance to work under Jack Daniels and Dick Taylor and then with Bill Maxwell Bill was uh, such a gentleman he was just loved by everybody and uh, whether it was our opponents or it was the people on campus it was our administration it was uh, our students this everybody loved him and uh, now don't get me wrong when it came down to be very competitive uh, he was a fierce competitor also, but there's not anybody that I've ever met that ever said a, a bad word about Bill. And uh, to know that you've gone through your life to make that many friends and uh, to have that many people say great things about you, you know that you did it the right way. And honestly, he showed me uh, on the field how to be a better coach too. So I respect him and everything that he's uh, been able to teach me and uh and brought to Hobart College for us. Uh, I've got one uh, question for you, uh, Coach, uh, a little more light-hearted uh, question uh, before we let you go. Uh, I was a wee lad uh, doing my first year of uh, non-student 
radio calling for Union pretty much in 2004, and it was the first year of the Liberty League automatic qualifier, and there's a Union College team that came into that game. I've been wanting to ask you this question for four years now, and now I've got the opportunity, and nobody can stop me unless Eric hangs up on me. So here's the question. Did you really call a fake punt from the one-yard line? <laughs> I really called a fake punt from the one-yard line. You know what? I, go ahead. Calling fake punts is so easy because the only time a defense really prepares for the fake punt is when you expect it, when it's over the 50. The last place you expect a fake punt to come from is going to be from there. And if you look at the odds, if I do punt the ball from the one-yard line and I get it out to the 40, you return it back to the 30, shoot, you're already in uh, four-down territory coming back down at me. So uh, let me gamble and try to turn the table on you and uh, try to change that field position for us. So I I love uh, looking into their eyes and being able to see what they're seeing and then be able to counter it and, and attack that way. So. I, I think that's that's easy to do. I like that. Jeff, is he really a riverboat gambler like that? I mean, is he that <laughs> intense about it all the time? Uh, absolutely. I we had a we had a really talented punter that year in Dan Swosey, and um, I, I know that there was some there was some pretty good leniency in uh, in the in the in the calls for punting with Dan, and uh, I remember his confidence on the sideline when he called that. Uh, we had the defense ready to go, and he. Uh, looked into our eyes and said, we won't be going out there. So, You guys won that yeah, game in overtime for the first Liberty League championship. I'm sorry, Eric, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, Coach Craig, you know, a lot of the fans out, out there in, in, the, in the Liberty League and in the chat rooms, they, they, they've been pushing to try and like a, a celebrity charity match, some kind of steel cage match. You, Coach Toop, Coach King, you know. <laughs> My you? money's on Toop. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would too after after I reviewed him the other day, boy. Holy cow! Um, again, Eric Red, Frank Rossi in the huddle on BlockTalkRadio.com. We've been joined by Coach Mike Craig and Jeff Sanders from Hobart. Uh, guys, fantastic season. You know, you, you faced some adversity. You you overcame adversity when the game was on the line. You made some big plays and you picked up some big wins. And you're going to represent this conference now in the NCAs. We all. Put our partisanship aside now, RPI fans, Union fans, St. Lawrence fans, we're all pulling for the Liberty League, so do us proud. Jeff, I want to actually ask my last question um, and, and give you a chance to do your shots, but my last question is, you know, this is the last time you're going to play as far as, as regular season. You're all done. Now you're going to the playoffs, end of your career. What's your biggest memory from 2008? The camaraderie I built between these guys. This wasn't originally my senior class. And I had I had great relationships with the guys who graduated last year, but the camaraderie I built on, especially on the defensive side of the ball, between Justin Hager, who obviously his stats and what he does speaks for itself, um, on and off the field, we're great friends. Uh, my guys up front, Kwame Lavelle, Tony Gadetti, Mike Faraka, Ryan Aruk. I mean, Mike Faraka, he eats double teams all day for him. He might get two tackles, but uh, every tackle I get is, is one of his. So. Uh, it really speaks volumes for what that kid does, and he, I really consider him one of my best friends. And all those guys up front, all those horses who don't get the, you know, they don't get the recognition. Me and Justin, Mike, or Ryan in Orlando, but uh, they really do all the work, and I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate what they do. Well, I know they appreciate what you do. Any any shouts you want to give? We give everyone a chance to do this. All the players. Uh, yeah, it's my team. Uh, let's go. Let's go Saturday. Let's go to work on Tuesday. 
let's start preparing and uh, let's be like Lycoming and let's go to Ohio. And, you know, you haven't proved anything unless you beat the best. So let's take down Lycoming and then let's go from there. Hey, well, thanks again, Jeff, for joining us. We were just in the huddle with Jeff Sanders from Hobart as well as his head coach, Coach Mike Gregg, 2008 Liberty League champs in a familiar position, heading to the NCAAs. You know, we're going to wish you all the best and uh, hope you do the – Hope you do the uh, league proud. We know you will. So, uh, Jeff and Coach Craig, thanks again for joining us, and, and good luck next week. Thank you. So, Frank, that turns us back to uh, in the last couple minutes we have left. You know, we're moving now into the postseason. We're going to stay with our listeners while a Liberty League member is alive in the playoffs, whether it's – I think we'll do this, you know, as long as, long as they're alive. So we're going to be – here next week, at least one more week, as well as covering whatever ECAC matchups our uh, member conference teams here face. So, Frank, any uh, from a regular season perspective, it's been an interesting experiment this year. We've had lots of great guests. I just was going to ask you what you kind of took away from this and, and your memories of our show here. I was just going to say, from my perspective, I'll tell you, man, it's been the guests. This has been all about the teams, all about the players, all about the coaches, all about the guests. All you and I have tried to do is tee up people and put them in front of you, you know, in front of our listeners and, and give some exposure to a conference that deserves nothing but exposure and nothing but praise. Yeah, I mean, uh, from here on out, it's probably going to be a one-hour show uh, until uh, we're empty in terms of teams left, uh, and we'll have a, kind of a quasi around the league. Obviously, next week will be easier with ECAC games also, but, uh, you know, I do walk away with that same uh, sentiment. There were probably three weeks in this uh, series so far in which we, you or I, or maybe even both, depending on what was going on, really didn't want to do the show because we were so hurt by, you know, on-field performance by our team. We take it personally because we're big fans. (laughs) And the the week before that for me, uh, the uh, RPI uh, loss uh, by Union, it was just a tough week. There were a couple of weeks uh, early in the season, too, when Uni was 1-3. Uh, it wasn't easy because, you know, you don't want to come across as biased, but at the same time, you know, we are associated with those teams. It's tough not for people to say, you know, what's going on uh, and as if we can give first-person answers to the questions because we're so close to them. That being said, you know, we start doing the show. We kind of force ourselves to do it sometimes when we're in that mood, and then – we walk away from it every week with this feeling of, wow. And seriously, like last week, Drew Connolly and Dave Pavlitz, yesterday, I didn't get to tell you this, uh, Eric, so I'll tell everybody else who's listening, Dave Pavlitz came up to the press box in full gear after the game. Uh, he wanted to see the uh, situation, if he had uh, won the rushing title or not at that point, uh, because it was a very close call, and uh, we all knew that. And I uh, saw him, and I introduced myself, hey, Frank Rossi. And he's like, hey, great to meet you guys. You guys are great to talk to last week and everything. And, I mean, I just kind of was beaming at that point, Eric, because, you know, what have we done here? And it's been just a lot of fun to have these guests week after week join us and be incredible with us. And let's keep going until it's over this year. So to that point, thanks again, Dr. Dick Kaiser, Chairman of NCAA Division III Selection Committee. Thanks to Tim Dainey, our Liberty League Commission. Thanks to Coach Mike Craig and Jeff Sanders from Hobart. Good luck next week. We're going to be covering them in the NCAA playoffs. Thanks to our listeners. You guys make it happen. Thanks to all our member teams in the Liberty League. James Baker, our Hobart resident guru, as always, thanks for bringing the noise for us on your favorite team. Folks, 
This is all about you. This is all about the Liberty League. We're going to be back next week. Thanks for a great regular season. And Frank, you know what they won this year? Yeah, in the house. Woo!